Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrew, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think to tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Nick Hare and Chris Ragg of Aleph Insights and also with our special guest this week, Alia Brahimi. And this week we're discussing the lasting effects of the Arab Spring. So, Nick, can you start us off, perhaps introduce us a little bit, tell us about um, Alia, who we've got with us here. Sure. Well, so I think this year will be the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring. And um, I think, you know, some of the things we probably want to talk about is whether the lasting effect has been positive or negative in different countries and, you know, what has succeeded and what has failed and what that might teach us more generally about revolutions and, you know, whether they work and if so, how. Um, And and so uh, who better, really, than... uh, uh, Alia Brahimi and uh, I've known Alia for several years now and she's the founder of uh, Alias Advisory but also primarily an academic um, who has worked at both uh, Oxford University and the ALSE and uh, is you know a pub- obviously published a lot of things in the popular press as well um, and who has uh, an unparalleled knowledge of the Middle East both firsthand from you know living there and knowing lots of people there but also from stuff like reading books about it and that kind of thing so um, yeah, so that's why I've asked her to join us on the podcast to talk about the Arab Spring. Great. Um, Alia, um, can you fill that um, lovely introduction? Can you fill that out a little bit for us? Tell us a bit more about your background, maybe your sort of areas of research and yeah, whatever you think makes sense. Sure. Um, yeah, as Nick says, uh, I'm originally an academic. Um, I probably still am. <laughs> And um, I started my uh, dubious career at the, the luminous University of Oxford. I was very lucky. And in those days, I was very much interested in the way in which war and violence is justified morally and philosophically and, and theologically. So I wrote a book on how the Bush administration had uh, reinvented aspects of the Western just war tradition to uh, legitimize the war in Iraq and other controversial elements of the war on terror. And also, uh, in the same book, I talked about how Al-Qaeda had sort of reimagined important aspects of the Islamic ethic of war. Mm-hmm. And as Nick knows, I'm still very interested in argumentation and narratives surrounding terrorism and conflict. And I'm actually hoping to soon begin a research project that uh, looks at the continuities between right-wing and jihadist terrorism. Uh, But that early focus on Al-Qaeda, its ideology and strategy, led me quickly into wider commentary on security and political issues in the MENA region, particularly when I was at LSE, which was during the Arab Spring. And then after that, I did a fair amount of advisory work, most recently in Libya. Um, so look, when we have a guest like this, I think, it, 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 unusually, because I tend to ask the questions, but when we have a, a guest like this, I think it's sort of better coming from yourselves, Nick and Chris. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to knock it back to yourself, Nick or Chris, um, to, to lead us in with any questions. I mean, we well, have... uh, yeah, I guess the main one is, what, the Arab Spring, has it disappeared? Are its effects still being felt? And if so, in what ways, you know, in different countries? Um, a very broad question, I know. You might want to drill into specifics if you're happy with that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we can start with just an overview of the Arab Spring mm. if you think your listeners would benefit from that. Sure. Yeah. Which is essentially, you know, you had this kind of sclerotic, unimaginative, repressive order that came face to face with with an ever younger population, right? And this is a population it couldn't understand, let, or, let alone represent. So you had this seismic rupture. 
And we can talk about the immediate triggers later, but generally speaking, this kind of socioeconomic dissent converged with political dissent in a region where the temperature was already soaring owing to um, rising food prices, which was a global phenomenon owing to drought and wildfires. But the MENA region is a huge importer of food, so it was massively impacted. So uh, in December 2010 in Tunisia, when um, the devastating death of an abused street vendor, Mohamed Bouazizi, he was 26 years old. He was a seller of fruits and vegetables and he had his cart or his electronic scale, depending on the telling, he had it arbitrarily confiscated. And he was the sole breadwinner of a family. This is a typical story, you know, with six other much younger dependents. And in despair, he set himself alight while looking skyward outside the governor's office. And so this initiated storms of protests across the region, across the town, and then through Southern Tunisia, and then to the capital and across the MENA region by a generation who literally felt this young man's pain. And these turned into full-blown revolts in five countries. And we know that each revolution took a different pathway. And while there were some early successes in terms of, you know, claiming the political scalps of four regional strongmen, and this euphoric shared feeling that, that finally something had moved and a page had been turned, but uh, unfortunately, three countries, Libya, Yemen and Syria, plummeted into civil war. And the balance sheet 10 years on is, is quite grim. Mm. Uh, you know, in terms of democratic metrics, I'm sure you all know, you know, from places like Freedom House or The Economist, um, only one Arab Spring country has achieved lasting democratic progress. Which, look, which one was that? That would be Tunisia. Right. So when you yeah. look at yeah, freedom of expression, pluralism, elections, that sort of thing. And even there in Tunisia, particularly in the southern quadrant, thousands of protests are occurring each year. The street remains combustible, mainly on account of the economy, but also um, uh, a political stalemate. But everywhere else, the region is less free than it was in 2011. So I think the, because you mentioned there were five main countries where it happened. Mm -hmm. Is, uh, I, I guess, I'm guessing the other one is Egypt? Yeah, so it was... So what's e the story there? Uh, I mean, Egypt's a good example where, you know, it was hopeful at first, but since then, so a full-blown civil war didn't break out mm. in Egypt. Um, but Egypt's an example of where places which averted war, where there's been this massive black backslide in terms of human rights, where the situation is probably worse than it was previously. Really? Yeah, so in Egypt now okay. you're looking at 60,000 political prisoners, whereas under Mubarak it's probably one or 2,000. So, you know, um, so even- Sorry, is that, is that because the new kind of regime is essentially uh, a kind of almost what's the word a counter-revolution and they're kind of yes. even more extreme right? it was the counter-revolution so in egypt and tunisia what was critical so you know there are a number of explanatory variables as as to why each revolution took mm. the path it took and one of them was the role of the military and in egypt and tunisia the military's decision not to open fire on protesters was game-changing it completely altered the equation and mubarak and ben ali left power but while in Tunisia, the military then retreated, in Egypt, it stayed on to sort of manage the transition. Mm. So it allowed a brief experiment with democracy, which produced inevitably the most organized opposition movement would come into power first, which was the Muslim Brotherhood. So they quashed that fairly quickly, very violently. And now the military rules 
openly in that uh, Egypt is now led by General Sisi. Chris, I, don't, I want to hear from you. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm quite interested in, because obviously it was 10 years ago, mm. um, which seems like time enough to reflect, but sort of historically, just in terms of, you know, the, the, the pattern of, of revolutions, um, mm. you know, you look at the, the French Revolution and it was, mm-hmm. it, you know, it was, 10 years of chaos and then, you know, slowly emerging from that. You look at uh, the American Revolutionary War and, you know, you, you had kind of uh, eight, eight years of war and then it was it was decades before, you know, co- co- sort of standard of living returned to pre-revolutionary levels. Well, they they still I, haven't accepted that, think they're worse <laughs> off and they should return to the... To, to the, the, the I know, yeah. I know, fools. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, you know, it, it 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 was it was until like the 1830s, I think, before per capita, um, uh, you know, wow. standard of living returned to to pre-revolutionary levels. But though you know, those are revolutions that are generally regarded as kind of you know good, successful revolutions. And 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 I I I've sort of got a a sense that revolutions, you know, they 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 never turn out. In, you know, in the short period afterwards, mm-hmm. to be successful, there are almost no examples of, of you know revolutions that were violently contested that mm-hmm. that were good immediately, but mm-hmm. that they lay the antecedents potentially for mm-hmm. something better to come in decades times as opposed as opposed to a decade of time. And I, mm-hmm. I wonder if the if from your perspective there are any glimmers there despite the fact that you know mm-hmm. repression has returned and so on has anything fundamentally changed that might lead to you know a a change across the middle east in 20 30 years time as opposed to 10 well definitely i think that is one of the main sources of hope and there are others you know i i think i began by pointing out that it you know in the first wave it was definitely one nil to the counter-revolution right and you look at indicators um it, the Middle East is the only region in the world where people have become poorer. So, you know, there's plenty of cause for pacifism, but at the same time, you have this second wave. So we can see this as a longer sort of non-linear transformative process that's actually currently unfinished. And so the second wave emerged in 2019 in Algeria, in countries actually which thought where the regimes had thought that they dodged a bullet in 2011. Mm. So in Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq and Sudan, you have these popular protest movements. Um, in Sudan, there was a significant uh, success in Algeria, probably middle ground in that the um, incapacitated president agreed not to run again and some of his cronies were arrested for corruption. But we all see the pictures on the television, particularly after the Beirut port explosion of Lebanon, also combustible. Um, and uh, these, in each case, they're rejecting the whole system again. And it's the same sort of um, post-ideological demands of the Arab Spring have re-emerged once more. And I thought that um, Joseph, uh, Joseph Hout of the American University of Beirut, he puts it very well when he's speaking about Lebanon, when he points out that these, these elites that have ravaged the country, the critical thing is that they have not shown the slightest sign of recognition about what they've done. And uh, it's the same in Algeria, this absolute willful blindness on the part of of even new leaderships. Um, So it's this idea that something's got to give. And in four countries, you know, these protests are ongoing, even in Iraq, which is probably a bit more like Myanmar, in that the crackdown has been ferocious in terms of uh, Iran-linked government snipers and this type of thing. And these brave and beautiful young people are still out in the streets. So it's still being written. 
Yeah. So it's, it's does the hope come then from? I mean, I I don't know. Part of me thinks you know people have been saying, oh well, the young. I remember like a young man. Mm-hmm. who was widely touted to be the new great reformer in the Middle East when I was first started looking uh, at the economies of the region in about the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was the coming man. He was interested in the Internet and, and, and democratic reform. And that young man's name was Bashar al-Assad. Mm-hmm. Um, do we put too much faith in, you know, this will work it out because the young people are soon going to, uh, one day are going to be the middle-aged people and they're going to be in power isn't the problem that when they're there, they then don't really want to let go? Or is there are, are there other other reasons to think that this time it's different? Yeah, I don't know that the, the sort of, you know, scion of, of a political family that had sort of captured every organ of the state is a representative of the youth. Mm. Um, you know, I think he was doing that. Then. That's true. He wasn't just a nobody in the street. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, he had, a, he had vested interest in the, in the game. But, um, you know, I think that the, the youth, is is certainly I'm so glad you pointed it out. Is the greatest source of hope, both in terms of the numbers and their attitudes, right? So um, the youth bulge that drove the first wave in 2011 is only fattened in the interim, and the population of the region has grown by 70 million since 2011. And that's, that's un- like a whole nother country. Exactly, and rates of youth unemployment have re- have remained around 30 percent and and far higher in places like Saudi Arabia. And at the same time, when attitudinal surveys are done, you know, polling shows that despite this Arab winter, which set in, you know, after 2011, um, young people overwhelmingly still believe in the promise of democracy, you know, at rates of 70 percent plus. What what did what would have the young people of of the 1960s have said, though? Would, would they have expressed the same sort of interest in stuff like democracy and pop music? <laughs> Um, Well, yes, certainly. I think that, you know, it hasn't been linear in the Middle East and sometimes they're looked back as a a golden generation or certainly a more hopeful generation, particularly when you look at countries, even Afghanistan, you know, and Lebanon. Mm. And, you know, it was this idea that, um, uh, you know, history will progress in this linear fashion and we're moving closer and closer to um, uh, free and democratic models. And that's the inevitable outcome. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's that, um, you know, there have been huge setbacks. And I think that the, the bugbear of Islamism, which has been the only opposition, unfortunately, that's been able to survive in this highly repressive environment, that's been a huge decoy. And that's a generational one. And it sort of has to it has to be processed through the system and almost sort of filtered out eventually. But it had to happen. If you were going to open up the Middle East in 2011, you know, as now, you're going to have to contend with this Islamist mm. problem. And I think that was the the issue with the West because it was the ambivalent role of the West, I think, which made the Arab Spring different to Eastern Europe in 1989, for example. The West was just uncomfortable. Well, the mm. US uh, was just uncomfortable with these seismic changes in the context mm. of uh, the terrorist threat. Um, so I've got a question. This is, this is for all of us, really. Um, and you're, maybe you're kind of getting into it there a bit earlier where you talked about um, the difference between Eastern Europe in 1989, thereabouts, mm. um, and the Arab Spring is, is a very general question. I want to broaden it out, but also maybe go a bit deeper, which is, you know, how good, a, how, how efficient are revolutions um, at, at changing? Um, at changing the, the status quo? At, at... Well, I've, I've looked at a bit of data 
I've looked at a bit of data, which 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 actually gives me uh, it provo- prompts a few questions that I've got for Ali and specifically about the Middle East. But um, so there's a um, a data set called the uh, Quality of Government data set. I, I can't remember who published it. We'll link to it. Um, and it and it tracks uh, regime changes and and sort of talks about how they how they how they end. Uh, or oh, sorry, what kinds of regime changes happen and um, how violent they are and what they lead to. And I was sort of interested in the cost benefit equation how of with us you should have a revolution if you could and um there, there are only three examples uh since 1946 in this data set of a revolution that leads to democracy like that's the kind of outcome we want right you have a revolution against an autocracy and it produces democracy and they're haiti in 2004 liberia 2003 and guinea-bissau in 1999 there are 10 examples of revolutions which end up with an autocracy um, so you you know you have a revolution, but then what you end up with is another you know so that includes um, the DRC in 1997, Rwanda 1994, Nicaragua 1979, and then you have four revolutions. So one more than the number that work that lead to total chaos, and that includes uh, Afghanistan 92, Liberia in 1990, and Somalia in 1991. So that they they are you know basically the, the the chances of success, even if you get to the stage of having a revolution. Uh, are very low and then i also looked at peaceful transitions so um how, how many there, there were 84 examples of peaceful regime so autocratic regimes that end and give way to a democracy which is way more than the number of revolutions and surprised me um uh, uh, so 84 of them of which uh, not 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 a single one is um is in the arab world and is there something about the arab world is there something structural which means that there there's sort of it's harder to have a revolution or it's less likely to succeed or is it just an accident of other factors which happen to prevail well not just a revolution but also a peaceful transition right so uh, right yeah i mean that's right sorry yes yeah 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 i think we can talk about you know, certainly what we're seeing now with these ongoing protests since 2011, I mean, what they show more than anything is actually the resilience of these social protest movements, mm. even though they're a little bit unfocused and they tend to be leaderless, they're still there. But equally resilient ha- have been these regimes. Mm. And, you know, the guys that were overthrown in 2011, many of them have been in power for 30 years plus. And I think that is one of the main facets of the Middle East is um, just the fact that these these um, autocratic structures have been so resilient. And one of the catalysts in 2011, actually, which we haven't mentioned, was that um, it Ben Ali in Egypt, Egypt um, Ben Ali in Tunisia, Mubarak in Egypt, what had already happened in Syria is that these, uh, these heads of republics were looking to pass on power to their progeny. Right. So it's just the system, you know, was sort of log jammed and stuck in, in a sense. Yeah, no, actually, it's interesting you say that because it just occurred to me. Uh, I mean, one of the most resilient types of autocracy is a monarchy. Um, mm-hmm. They've got one of the lowest annual rates of, of failure. Um, mm-hmm. It's 0.03 percent of um, monarchies fail in any given year. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and of course, there are that really the the certainly the um, Arabian Peninsula is a hotbed of monarchies. It's like the last holdout of of monarchies. So, um, is is that a factor 
Is it just that actually you've got a lot of monarchies, absolute monarchies there? Well, they, t- they tend, you know, at least in that first wave, they tended to be unaffected uh, or certainly not like, you know, other countries. You know, monarchy was a factor in actually relative stability. Uh, the fact that they're oil rich, I think, is does the most mm. of the explanatory work um, because essentially you can diffuse discontent. Uh, and Sorry, that, is, to, can you explain a bit more about that? What's well, the strategy? Oh, well, essentially, you know, to put it crudely, you're sort of buying off uh, the population. And generally speaking, they had a higher standard of living to begin with. That's mm. one of the, the sort of key components of that model of, of, of ruling. But of course, that is becoming less and less viable as uh, the imperative to transition to a post-oil free mm. future becomes more more urgent. Uh, and there is something to be said about the monarchies. You know, they looked on extremely uh, worried and with with intense jitters at what was happening because they knew that they would be next uh, in this wave mm. that was sweeping the region. Mm. So very quickly, they you know put their oars in and and sought to influence events. So I think one of the that that brings us to another factor uh, with the Arab Spring in, in in terms of explanation is actually the strategic value of the country. So Tunisia, which is you know ostensibly the only sort of one that's transitioned to democracy, luckily had very little geostrategic value in a sense. Uh, so you know Libya had its oil, Syria has its prized geopolitical position. Yemen is on the back door of Saudi Arabia, where potentially Iran could come and and make some trouble. And Egypt is a sort of mother of the region, which sets the tone. Mm. Uh, but Tunisia was left, was, was, was not as strategically valuable. And as a result, was left relatively unmolested by outside powers. And I think that does a lot of the explanatory work. Well, it helps when we look at why it's been able to transition to democracy. Because one of the key facets post-2011 is the level of not just global, but regional intervention in each Arab Spring country. Mm. Chris? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sort of quite interested in this, this notion of um, the extent to which something is, is round the corner. I mean, if you look at mm-hmm. sort of Tsarist Russia, you know, there were many attempts to sort of overthrow or undermine Tsarist Russia before it was, it was effective, uh, you know. Uh, um, right. There was actually a, a revolution. But um, what, what I'm kind of, what I'm interested in is, is the extent to which um, when you get those revolutions... You know, they're often led, like the successful ones, are often led by the most fervent, right? And in mm-hmm. in the region you're talking about, I mean, if you look at, um, uh, you know, the Iranian revolution, mm-hmm. you know, what happened afterwards was that those with the clearest vision kind of, uh, you know, imposed the system afterwards. And those who resisted, uh, you know, or had a different vision, the only way to suppress that when you have uh, effectively... Um, you know, forced a power transition as opposed to having a democratic process. The only way to to sort of um, you have no legitimacy or political legis- legitimacy at that point. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the only way you can defend things is is autocratically and by by locking things down. And I, I so I'm wondering, a, you know, are we are we likely to see a cycle of of attempts? You know, mm-hmm. as as you have done, you you have done in other kind of autocratic. Um, uh, you know, long-standing um, regimes, and mm-hmm. are they kind of destined to be replaced by something something else that is fervent and and then has to be you know what's what's the route out of this cycle of of um, auto- autocracy replacing autocracy? 
you know, I think it's a question that was already posed with the Arab Spring when Islamists tended to benefit, obviously, you know, because they were the, the sort of mode of opposition that was most likely to survive under, under dictatorship. Also, they're very well organized. So they tended to gain ground very quickly, very early in, say, Libya and Egypt. Um, but it did raise the specter of this question, are we just going to be, uh, is, are these regimes going to be supplanted for Islamofascist kind of regimes? Mm. And that became a very quick worry for everyone. I think people in the region were more hopeful that this was a moment in time, but uh, it was an experiment that wasn't allowed to kind of run its course in a sense, certainly not mm. in Egypt. Uh, so that is, yeah, I mean, you're right to raise that. That's one of the, the factors that gives a lot of pause. Um, but I think that, you know, there are a number of hopeful things. We've talked about the second wave, we've talked about the youth, but, you know, I always find the fact that, you know, you look around and no political equilibrium has been reached despite the fact that the, of, of the counter-revolution. And where regimes have come through, they rely on less legitimacy than ever before. Um, so they're more repressive than they were ever pre-2011. So I think that, you know, they're running on empty in terms of, mm. uh, you know, kind of uh, the will of the people. And even in Syria, for example, where the Assad regime has reconsolidated power with enormous help, like significant help, game changing help from, from Russia and Iran. But uh, even within the Assad regime's base now in the last few weeks, you've seen some sort of um, arrestiveness over poverty and hunger. So, uh, you know, for me, it just, it, these regimes are, that supposedly won out are not sitting easily in their own skins, right? So it does feel more like a stay of execution. Yeah. And is this a yeah. region at peace with itself? No. No, that's, that's it, really. It sort of feels to me like, well, I, I, guess, I guess I don't really understand why autocracies behave like they do. Mm. Because if you, want, if you want, if you're an autocracy and you want to stay in power, getting more autocratic does seem like a high risk strategy to mm -hmm. me it, it never mm -hmm. seems to work you know in the long run mm -hmm. um uh, I, I could be wrong i might just this might just be wishful thinking or it might just be my experience of you know growing up in the 1980s and seeing the uh you know the revolutions in eastern europe and just thinking mm -hmm. you know if the communists had been a bit nicer yeah. if, if moscow had been a bit had, had been a bit nicer to these regions they might not be so eager to break away mm -hmm. um but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose that's it really is that that sort of feeling of um, some from what you said, I, I sort of feel like there's a bit of a race on, you know, mm -hmm. about whether or not the autocracies can survive long enough for, let's say, Islamism to go away, mm -hmm. for, for it to become replaced with something else, a slightly more benign ism, perhaps. Um, uh, but also whether or not, you know, the, there's that you mentioned this issue of post oil. You know, mm -hmm. whether or not yes. actually the, the uh, you know, the, there's going to be this even bigger crunch coming up where yeah. suddenly that infrastructure of, for those monarchies is just going to, the whole rug is going to be pulled away because, you know, and, and I, 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 what's, what happens then? And, mm -hmm. and what happens then? And, and by then, does it matter? Mm -hmm. I think... I, I, a lot of questions, sorry. <laughs> no, it, it's a great question. And it is the question because you're talking about... Uh, 
a prevailing political economy, a model that is defunct, right? And it has the makings of a major crisis because it's not just the oil rich monarchies that rely on this dynamic. You know, many countries are propped up by remittances and second order effects from these hydrocarbons economies. And I think the most damning indictment in this regard is that for decades now, many of these monarchies, regimes and governments have been talking about diversification, about transitioning mm. to a knowledge-based economy, about moving away from oil and gas rents, and yet almost nothing has been done. So it shows that these structures are not compatible with the reforms that they need to survive. So that question has been asked and it's answered, and I'm not sure that they're gonna pull anything out of the bag at this late stage, uh, because these systems lack the imagination sort of to rise to the moment, I feel. So that that very much, I think, leads to the to be continued. Uh, uh, right. So I think I mean, I think I think the answer then, I mean, is is to the question of, you know, what the, what does the Arab Spring mean 10 years on is you look you're asking, looking at where we are now and trying to say, well, how much progress have we made is the wrong way to answer it. That actually, you know, what the Arab Spring was 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 a symptom of some much more deep seated um, structural problem that has not mm -hmm. been fixed. And yeah. that's the that's the issue. And mm -hmm. that at some point we will face something. Um, whether or not it's going to be good or bad, we don't know. But uh, on the evidence of most revolutions, it'll probably be bad. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's going to happen. And um, there's the you know, it doesn't look like there's anything we can do to make that sort of to fix it in the short term. We just have to wait. Is that, is that true or is that an overly cynical, politically realist sort of view? Well, I think that the people with the most agency in terms to stave off this kind of crisis and seismic event that you're talking about, which is the governments themselves, are doing very little. So, yeah. you know, unless that changes and we incentivize something or but, you know, at the same time, you know, as they become more repressive, they're, they're, they're more and more running counter to the zeitgeist. And now that yeah. Biden's in power and that sort of thing. So it's hard to know, you know, for them, what would be the wise way to go? And if they're unwilling, which they are, to do any of the hard work. Um, you know, the, the outcome sort of seems inevitable. And that's the feeling across the region is that something has to give and it will give. And, you know, you look at the the uh, placards in Tahrir Square where people are talking about how they're already dead. I think that's the, that's the key. I'm not afraid to mm. die because I'm already dead or Erhal, uh, leave so that we can live. It's a life yeah. and death thing. So if that's mm. another generation or another two generations, you know, I think that that's a, that's a cost that many will be w willing to bear and that will manifest itself in the event of another major crisis, whether it's another global food crisis, uh, the outcome of the pandemic, by the way, or even, you know, a, a weather based event as a result of climate change or something. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of catalysts that you can imagine. And it does just need that spark. Uh, it is a tinderbox at the moment, even though things feel relatively stable geopolitically. When you're there, you know, it, it does feel like um that something something has to give and and, and and give soon yeah 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 so well we'll catch up in 10 years and uh see what i think yeah, that, that, that is the scope and the magnitude that yeah. we're talking about yes yeah <laughs> i feel like that has rounded it off is there anything extra we want to add? i mean i don't worry i've got a question i want to ask um <laughs> but nick chris is there is there anything more you want to ask there? And bearing in mind, this needs to be a kind of a rounding it all yeah. off. If I think, if I think, is. yeah, I think the only thing that um, uh, that occurs to me is that the the backdrop of what comes next sh mm. should look quite optimistic in terms of you know the number of countries 
that are democratic at the moment it's it's you know in general terms is going up it's an upwards trend so you know let's let's hope that's the direction things go in Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that, you know, it, recall, it always calls to mind that line from C.S. Eliot that we're undefeated because we've gone on trying. And I think that's mm. that's the key. And that's what we've seen in the last couple of years with, with as I say, these brave and, and beautiful uh, young people out in the streets. Uh, they, they will go on trying. Uh, Nick, anything you'd like to add? Well, I think that's a good uh, uh, rounding off. Right. So I think, cool. Fraser, you okay. should ask the question. The question. Um, yeah. I can't recall, That's Ali, if you if you listen to our podcast or not. I can't I'm remember. afraid I tipped I'm, her off. I'm, you know, I, I do. Oh, but I, I, you know, on the point of listening, I do and and habitually. But when I commute, so for the you know for almost a year, I mm. haven't really. Which <laughs> oh, is, oh, I, I felt a huge loss, but at the same time, I feel oh, like sure. I've cli- <laughs> at the same time I feel like I've climbed into my phone because I listen to this podcast. So it's really quite exciting. <laughs> I like that. That's a nice advert, right? There. That's good. Um, so, Ali, when we have a special guest like yourself, what we always mm-hmm. what I always like to do is. I ask so here's the question um if, if you weren't an academic uh, stroke expert in the middle east right mm-hmm. what would you be what would what, what's your other life what's the other alia out there what would you be doing if you what weren't doing I this be? well i'd like to be a police officer probably but i think that's from you know it's an adjacent field maybe it's an outgrowth of what i do already so i'll be more brave and say uh, a builder and why a builder um, well, I just love how things uh, sort of fit together. I like to work with my hands, that sort of thing. I just get exhilarated on, on a building site with the troubleshooting and the constant uh, problem solving. If I was a bit fancier, I, I might say an engineer like my father, but um, right. you know, a builder is good enough for me. Well, hold on. What would you build? What kind of structures would you go in for? <laughs> Probably houses and build and renovate houses and... <laughs> Well, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps you could be, you know, the first, uh, the first democratically elected prime minister of, of, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia in years to come. And then you could build a new country. (laughs) Nice little. That's pretty terrible, wasn't it? That was pretty bad. That that was highly contrived. Yeah. Yeah, well, contrived. I, there you go. That's the word. I'm highly contrived, but not not sort of irrelevant because uh, you know, in lieu of reforming the economy and tackling these urgent, uh, deep structural problems, uh, Mohammed bin Salman is building a whole new city called Neom, and it's uh, it's a space age city with robots and this uh, automatic cars and this that. And the Wait, other. sorry, where's this? So where is this? In, where in Saudi Arabia. Well, yeah, where, whereabouts though? Which? Well, is it? it's on the coastline. So when you go as a tourist, which I don't know if you've noticed the campaigns on, on your sky uh, box, the t- television campaigns, but when you go and visit um, beautiful Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, that should be that should be on your bucket list because <laughs> it will be a city like no other. Meanwhile, Saudis are getting poorer and poorer and youth unemployment mm. stands at over 40%. It Just sounds don't, like don't a dystopian a, nightmare. Yeah. So don't write a bad, don't write a bad trip advisor, um, yeah. or, or they might come and get you. Yeah. yeah and actually just you know this is may or may not be for the podcast but just out of interest i'm curious alia where originally what's your background are, are you from are you saudi arabian where are you from no, originally i'm not no. uh, that was that was a uh, when Nick said, stereotype the thing is i know you're but you're algerian <laughs> no, but they've yeah. got a prime minister haven't they so what's the point of that <laughs> i can't true, say that's that. true that's true so i'm, I'm half american and half algerian uh, i was born uh, in wichita kansas and moved right, to the region, okay. uh, moved to the region as, as a baby, and lived in uh, Bahrain, in Algeria, where my father's from, in uh, Cyprus as well for a bit, uh, and I spent a lot of time in Lebanon. Yeah, but you wait till you hear the exciting fact I learned about Alia this week. 
Right. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is going to be good. now. No, I'm the reason myself. that the reason that Fraser needs to know this particularly is because, as you know, he's married to a Brazilian and um, uh-huh. and has spent has spent time living in South America. So Alia's mum was one half of the Hermanas Park, <laughs> who were a pop sensation in South America in the nineteen sixties. And this I and uh, they, yeah, and I she sent me some links, and I had to say I loved it. It's like a kind of very upbeat, sort of close harmony, uh, sort of samba, you know, Latin jazz style pop. Really good, yeah, great. So I, I, but have you heard of them? Have you heard of the Park Sisters? I'm afraid I haven't, uh, much to my shame. But I well, should ask this to my wife. Yeah, um, I too. Alia, you you're you're a woman of many layers it seems. So <laughs> that's so yeah. True. That's true. Um yeah, that's that's one way of putting it. Yeah. Um I I was surprised to hear you say that you wanted to be a builder as well. You I, you know, but... so, so, so much so. Uh, my husband yeah. laughed at me. And as I said, you know, if I if, if I was being fancy, I'd probably be an aer- my father was an aerospace engineer actually. Right. Yeah, yeah. And Anyway. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. Awesome. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap things up. I've got a little spiel to give here. Yeah. So we'll stop there. Um, if you've got any thoughts or suggestions for topics, um, you can email us at podcast at alafinsights.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, also, if you've enjoyed the podcast, um, Nick, what should listeners do? They should uh, lightly tickle the like button. <laughs> And follow us on your chosen streaming service. So it just remains for me to say thank you uh, so much for joining us on the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Nick Hare and Chris Rag of LFA Insights. But of course, a special thank you to our special guest, to Ali Ibrahimi. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.